dear friends, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Mano Elia here. And you're listening to The Study of Stuff. And I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in, baby. I really do appreciate it. Because the natural man is what I am, but not who. No, no, no. Right there. That's my new track. Just released it. You can find it everywhere that you stream music and all those things. You know, you know where those things are? Go there. But if you don't want to go there, you want to go to one place where everything is. Every single thing is. It's manoelia.com. You'll find my podcast there. You'll find my music there. You'll find some jingy jangs and anything you're looking for. I'm telling you, it's there. Go look there. If you, if you can't find it, whatever it is, you can't find it, go there. I'm telling you, it's there. Trust me. Manoelia.com. It's there. Whatever you're looking for, it's there. Anyways, today's uh, show. My interview, great conversation with Derek Bros. I truly enjoyed this conversation, man. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, you know, we talked about his history. We talked a little spirituality. We talked about psychology a little bit. We talked a little bit about community building, parallel societies, his music. Like, I mean, we're all over the place. So if you're interested in community building, if you're interested in parallel societies, what are those things? And how to opt out of the technocratic state which is the name of his book where he's coming out with a, with a, with a new edition. And I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you should check this book out if you don't want to be a part of what's coming. If that's not for you, man, you don't want the technocratic state that's on its way. That, and for the most part, it's here, dude. It's here. If you don't want that shit, then you better start making some plans now, man. Start building some community. Really put your shit together. And if that is what you're into, this is, your, this is the episode for you, man. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Derek Bros. Who is this guy, Derek Bros? If you don't know, I'm going to tell you. Derek Bros is a freelance investigative journalist. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's an author. He's a public speaker. He's an activist. Okay, like this guy truly embodies the the the, the definition of activism. So this guy is about action, solution-based thinking, and like really trying to make a difference. And honestly, I can attest to that. Uh, I had the pleasure of hosting uh, one of the activation tour dates here in Mexico and uh, himself and Miriam, fantastic individuals. They mean what they say and they say what they mean. Anyways, without further ado, here's my, uh, uh, my, uh, my, uh, 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 here's my interview with Derek Bros. All right. So we got Derek Bros on the show today. Uh, super excited for you to have you on the show, my brother. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I'm happy to be here with you, man. I know it's been a while. You know, we've been trying to make this happen. So thanks for your patience. Absolutely. And actually, kind of, uh, it works out perfect. It coincides with uh, my year here in Mexico, um, actually leaving Canada, getting here. So participating in the Exit and Build program. So it's kind of, uh, it's kind of good that we're doing it now and not sooner. So it kind of worked out perfect. Great, man. Happy to be here with you. Happy to talk about, I know we're going to get into some fun topics, so I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Well, first things first, um, I definitely want to talk about uh, how um, how I came into contact with your work. So first of all, uh, I think it was 2014, if I'm not mistaken, I was uh, watching a good friend, James Corbett, and he had you on and he, you were talking about, uh, I believe it was conscious resistance, if, not, if I'm not mistaken. And right away, that caught my attention. I was like, okay, because you know um, I've been at this game for a bit. So I've seen a lot of people talk about like straight conspiracies activism, mm -hmm. uh, spirituality, all this stuff, but you were kind of starting to mix them together. And I really, that really rang true to me, uh, being that that's a big part of how I view things is like, there's a mm -hmm. physical, mental and spiritual component. And right off the bat with that interview with Corbett, you're already throwing in uh, aspects of spirituality. And I thought that that happened to be extremely important. So I really liked the, your take on that. 
after that, I kept up with a lot of the work that you've been putting out. And that's quite intense, the amount of volume <laughs> of stuff that you put out there. Um, but then uh, Activation Tour. So that came up and um, I wanted to participate and I wanted to help you out. So, uh, you know, I participated in trying to book an event here in, uh, in uh, beautiful PV where I'm at. Uh, and uh, we had yourself and Miriam come down, give us a little bit of a talk. Uh, I found that uh, it was profound. And as usual, you, you found a way to mix spirituality into the mix. So I'm a big fan of your work because it's uh, action-oriented, solution-based. Uh, you, you put in components of spirituality, and I think that's fantastic and very important and really helps a, an individual stay grounded in this crazy, chaotic mess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean, no, I, I, definitely, I definitely try to be conscious of that. First of all, I mean, it's always cool to hear people because it's very rare, I feel like, these days to, for somebody to be like, oh, I was listening to you back in 2012 or in 2014. You know, it's almost a decade ago. Um, because you know, you when, like as you said, you, when you've been at it for a while, the idea is that your work progressively grows, or your audience grows, or at least that's what we hope for, right? So that's what been my trajectory. So the last couple of years, there's been an influx of a lot of new people who have only seen the last couple of years of my work. So it's always nice when somebody has like a kind of a more of a historical perspective and and can see you know what I'm trying to do. Because the reason I created the Conscious Resistance and shared it with James and the book series and everything else was because I similarly to probably maybe how you felt, felt like there was, as I was waking up, I was finding lots of good research, um, some better than others, but there was often kind of tinged with like fear and doomsday porn and just this kind of like end of the world. It's all about to happen. Uh, you know, what people sometimes refer to as like black pilled or defeatism, I call it the defeatist trap these days, but I was seeing that and I was, you know, I was appreciating the awareness, but I was also in my personal life going through a very big spiritual change and had recently gotten out of prison and was my whole life had changed from that and got into meditation and just all these different things that were coming. And so I was having this sort of awakening, like discovering uh, voluntarism and natural law and a lot of the ideas we're going to get into at the same time that I was having my spiritual awakening. So I felt like I'm getting the information and the philosophy here, but there's, I was also meeting a lot of people who were uh, libertarians or volunteers or anarchists, but who considered themselves to be atheists. Like they saw themselves as very uh, rational, logical people who came to these principles based on their logic and their ration, uh, their rationality. And uh, they were often atheists and rejected like anything, spirituality, anything of that, like woo woo kind of stuff. How, you know, obviously everybody has a, a different line of what they might call woo. But for these folks that I was mainly encountering in the beginning of my work, it was very much like, make fun of anybody who's spirituality, yep. who has, who believes in spirituality, that kind of thing. So I kept running into that and recognizing like, okay, so they get some of the picture, but I don't think they get this other aspect. And after running into that enough, I just decided like I have tended to do over my, uh, my career is just like, if I don't see somebody doing it the way I think it should be done, I'm not just going to complain or sit around and, you know, or poke at them like, Hey, why aren't you doing the thing I think you should do? Cause I've had yeah. people do that to me too. Why don't you talk about the things I think you should talk about? Um, instead just like, okay, well let's do it better then. Right. If so, if nobody's doing this, then I'm going to learn from the people I get inspired by. I'm going to see their shortcomings or their, their limitations, not judge them for it. Just that's where they're at. And then I'm going to say, okay, well, I want to make sure I'm shining in that area, you know, and that's sort of was a lot of the inspiration for why I wanted to bring the spiritual message into the freedom message. And I'm really happy you did. Cause I think it's actually a, like a cornerstone to the whole thing. Even if you're like, if you call yourself a libertarian or, or anarcho-capitalist or whatever, um, oftentimes if you're not incorporating the spirit into it, like I don't want to call it God or whatever, if that makes people feel uncomfortable, but whatever, believing in something above us, mm -hmm. um, then it doesn't give you a, it doesn't give you a position on the map where you stand, meaning 
who's giving you your rights and how can they take it away? If you don't have like divinity sure. or something more that's giving you rights, then how do you defend natural law, for example? That kind of thing. So Yeah, those are, those are good questions to ask. And I also think that, you know, for me, my spirituality, I definitely came from a place of being very anti-religious, very, I mean, I would even say at a younger age, very much anti-God. You know, I was a kid that was like, fuck God and drawing upside down crosses, not because I was satanic, but because I loved how it triggered religious people. I just like, I realized like these people, you know, there was, there was a lot of that. And I still have that. There's definitely still a lot of ways that organized religion really rubs me the wrong way and and drives me nuts. Um, But I also, you know, I've come to recognize that as I'm sure you see a lot of the different overlapping movements and people we work with, many of them come from a conservative Christian background. And I think there's learning on both sides, right? Because some of those people, I often harp on this in some of my videos and spiritually come, spirituality comes up, especially as it relates to my own personal spirituality, which comes from native traditions, particularly the Choctaw and Lakota um, nations. And for the folks who are maybe totally unaware of that or Christian or Catholic or Muslim or whatever religion they are, something that doesn't look familiar to them often gets labeled as, Oh, it's satanic. It's evil. It's pagan. It's whatever, because they have their very narrow set of beliefs of you got to say these certain words or go to these certain churches or read this, read this book. Otherwise my God isn't saving you and things like that. And that's fine for people to hold those beliefs. I'm not here to try to change anybody's, but I try, that's not really the way I approach it. Like I can have my own spiritual beliefs and things that I understand. I can hold rational and irrational things at, at once. Um, actually in the conscious resistance trilogy, we talk about balancing the need for logic and intuition and emotion, those two things. So, you know, I, I try to strive for that while also understanding where other people are coming from. And yeah, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of people who are waking up who come from that Christian, um, religious, whatever it may be background. And that's fine. I think there should be a way for us to work together still, you know, and to find that common ground. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think it's people on both sides, right? There's some people who I know who might consider themselves more vaguely, loosely spiritual, who don't want to work with Christians or Muslims or whatever, because they're just so opposed to organized religion, you know, and it works both ways. So for me, it's like, how can we, how can I find a way to connect with all the people out there who are in pursuit of very similar goals to myself? Like our end goal might not be exactly the same. Like me and you might not want to live in the exact same community vision, but I know that generally speaking, we have goals and and values that are aligned more than probably 90% of the population. Right. So how can I, put aside the differences and like, okay, well, they're a little more religious than I prefer, or they're a little more new age, hippie, whatever you want to say than I, you know, tend to be. I can still work with people, right? I don't need to believe everything a person believes in order to find that ability to co-create together. Absolutely. And I actually want to talk a lot about that uh, when we start talking about community. Uh, But before I get into that, you you gave a little bit of a background on your, uh, on who you are, who Derek Bros is. Um, And I think the story of who an individual is, especially if they're a public figure putting out a message is exceptionally important for many, many, many reasons. Number one, where do you stand? What are your beliefs? Mm. Uh, How did you get to this? How did you come to this point where you're now out here doing this? I mean, for myself, I got into all of this, not through conspiracy. Most people assume that that's where I, how I started. Mm. Actually, it wasn't actually, that was towards the end of it. For me, it was uh, trying to understand consciousness. That was really my entry point. And then reading like G. Edward Griffin, uh, Jekyll Island in the late 90s and Federal Reserve kind of made me twist a bit. And then, you know, even Graham Hancock and trying to understand, you know, mm-hmm. fingerprints of God and questioning all of these things. That's how I got yeah. to this, right? And then conspiracy was just kind of a way for me to understand why 
and how they were keeping these messages contained. Now, for yeah. yourself, I really want you to break down how did you get to this, like from the from as early back as you want to go to like the moment we're standing here today. Sure, sure, I appreciate that opportunity, brother. Um, you know, a couple of things I'll say first is that I've always had an inquisitive mind. Um, just from I can remember being in elementary and being the weird kid going to the library to check out. I've been trying to find these books forever because I would like to buy them because I remember reading them as a kid. I can't remember the exact title of them, but it was something like a series that was like, you know, one of those unsolved mysteries or unexplained. And it was like books about UFOs, books about the Bermuda Triangle, books about uh, spontaneous human combustion, books about disappearing, you know, and I was into it. I was there for it. So from a young age, you know, those kind of things piqued my interest, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, this kind of stuff, just because I... I think I was open-minded enough and those sort of things planted seeds that would sprout later in my mind that like, Hey, maybe you're not being told everything that exists in the world. Right. That sort of was already in my, in my mind, but you know, I didn't really start to get into what I'm doing now until much later. I mean, what I will say is that I was 20 years old, almost 20 years ago, 2005. I got addicted to crystal meth in January, 2005, after kind of spending the better year of about a better part of a year, year and a half bouncing between, being the drunk guy at the party, puking everywhere, just using alcohol to try to solve my problems, then taking pills all the time, then taking ecstasy for six months till I was a zombie. And I was just like hopping from one thing to the next, to the next kind of in this permanent state of being like blacked out. Like I wake up and like, Oh, I got a new girlfriend. I don't know how that happened. I don't remember what, like literally I was in this like haze. And then eventually January, 2005, I tried crystal and that pretty much just like grabbed me and got a hold of me. And uh, by November, 2005, I was, I was locked up. I turned uh, 21 in prison you know, or on the way to prison in the county about, so I got a, locked up about a week before I turned 21. And that was, you know, where I was able to start doing a lot of introspection, meditation, prayer, and really that, that person I described before, who was very much like anti-God, anti any of this stuff had started to, like I'd started to wake up and kind of open up spiritually before I got locked up. Because in addition to all the hard drugs I was abusing and misusing, I was also experimenting with mushrooms and acid and and those kinds of things were definitely like showing me there's something more going on than like yeah. just this physical plane. And so I kind of had already those seeds in my mind, in addition to, as I said, just being a young kid, really curious about the world. But it wasn't until I got locked up that I really started fully exploring that. And basically, you know, if you're given a sentence of a year and there's nowhere you can go, you have a choice of how am I going to use this time, right? I'm here. Yeah. And I often, when I share this story, I explain it like a feeling of feeling totally powerless you know, and it's not, I think, something that we face too much in our regular, everyday, free world lives, no matter how difficult things can be. Because even when things are bad, you can still walk outside and enjoy the sun when you want. You can go make yourself a sandwich. You can, you know, use the bathroom without 10 naked men around you, things like that, right? There's certain things that you are able to do no matter what your circumstances are. But when you put yourself in a situation where, like, the force of government and the law and the guns of the police are in standing between you and your freedom, and they put you in a four by four room with, 30 other guys and bunk beds and things like that. Like you can cry, you can scream, you can be angry at everybody. You can curse out the lawyer and the judge and whoever you want. You're not going anywhere. There's nothing that's going to change that circumstance for you. Right. Sometimes money can fix that, but oftentimes even money won't change that. And um, that feeling was really where I found my strength. Just this feeling of, so I got locked up and then I tried to solve it real quick. And I was like, okay, I'm going to sign for probation. I've never been in major trouble. I just got caught with crystal meth. I'm pretty sure I'm screwed. But I'm going to try to figure this out and not tell my family. That was my goal. I was like, I'm just going to, you know, they're going to think I disappeared for a couple of days and I'll be back before anybody knows it. So I get arrested and I'm in there for a couple of days. And, you know, this I had been in the county a couple of times 
you know, de- like public intoxication, little things like that overnight stays. I was already kind of getting friendly with the county service, but I was in there and I just had this horrible feeling like, okay, I think I'm screwed. And, you know, as usual, there's usually some like regulars there that come up and they can tell like I'm some 18, like 20 year old kid there just like looking confused and definitely looking lost. And so I had some people kind of take me under their wing and like try to give me advice. Like, Hey, if I was you, I would take a deal. Or if you're okay, just go do your time. You know, it's no big deal. Get it over real quick. You know, these are people who probably in and out of prison their whole lives. So I, I was offered a deal. Uh, they told me I would get a two year felony probation sentence and that I would be allowed to go home. This is a Friday. I went to go see the judge. They said, if you sign today, you get two years felony probation and you'll be out by Monday. So I signed thinking like, cool, this is going to be over before my family even notices. I'll be home. Everything will be cool. And uh, as I was sitting that weekend, I just had this like pit in my stomach, like something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right about this. And the more I talked to some of these old timers, they were like, I've never heard of a deal like that, man. That doesn't sound like you're getting like something just, I was so nervous. And so they're like, yeah, Monday morning, you're going to go see the judge again and you'll be released. And I go see the judge Monday morning and she's like, okay, I'm giving you two years felony probation and I'm giving you a concurrent sentence of one year. So I got prison time and, and got out on probation, which is not very typical at all. And, uh, if I had a good lawyer, I probably could have, you know, argued it, but I was just, again, trying to just like, all right, I'm going to keep my family out of this and just take care of myself. And it is what it is. Like, you know, there's no point in being like, damn it, if I just would have done this thing differently, or if I just wouldn't have had that eight ball of crystal meth in my car, if I would have just, you know, who cares? Like at the end of the day, I believe these things happen to me for a reason. I fully believe that if I hadn't gone through that experience, I wouldn't be here doing the work that I'm doing now. So Definitely. when I, when I finally got that sentence, though, and I knew like, Hey, there's no going home. Like you know, I, I got the sentence. My mom was, then I had to tell my family, like, Hey, I, I'm not going to be home for a little while, you know? And I had to tell my girlfriend, Hey, I thought I was about to get out. I'm not coming home for a year. You know, that was like a huge shift. And, um, my mom from there, she tried to do what any mom does and scrambled and like, let me see if I can get a lawyer and maybe they can negotiate something and get you out. And cause it was like, I'm going to go, I, I was being sentenced to go to another place, but I had to sit there in the County for three to four months on what they call dead time, which doesn't count towards your actual sentence, just waiting. So I'm just like sitting there, just waiting, doing nothing, you know, and then my sentence will start. So that is just this whole mess. So my mom was trying to get a lawyer and that didn't work out. The judge was like, no, he needs to sit in there and he needs to sit and sober up or whatever. And yeah, so once that came and it was like, damn, we played all our cards. Like, I can't do anything. Like, that's when that feeling really set in of like, oh shit, like this is it. Like, I'm I'm here. I'm fucking here. And that's like the sadness, the anger, all the things coming in, right? And like, and again, those thoughts of, damn it, why did I go try to go buy weed that day? Why did I go do this thing? Why did, you know, why didn't I do this other thing? And it, it's just, it's, it's all just a waste of time, at least for me. I mean, it's good to have those feelings and to feel them for a moment, but ultimately it's like, okay, so what am I going to do? Am I going to just spend the next year trying to become a better criminal or, which is what a lot of people do, or am I just going to be mad at my you know, family? Why didn't they do this? Or just mad at myself? Or am I going to try to get something out of it? And that's really what I, I chose to do is, so I started to get my grandmother um, who's been, she recently passed actually a couple months ago. She's been was one of my biggest spiritual influences in my life because she's always just been a healer. And that's also where the native of my family comes from. And, you know, we grew up going to grandma's house. She's a chiropractor, you know, publicly, but really she was a healer. And so when people were open to it, she would give them different medicines. And uh, I started to get her to send me books on prayer, on meditation. I, like I said, I was really just opening up and was like, all right, just whatever. I mean, I got nothing but time, right? Send me what you can. So she started sending me material and that was really the beginning of, you know, me, opening up in those ways. And so fast forward, I end up getting, 
I ended up doing my time. I ended up doing uh, 18 months in total between 2005 and 2008. 2008, I was eventually convicted of, of being a felon. Um, and I got out and I was, I was released October 2008, right as Obama was getting elected. I've got off parole June 2009. By the end of that summer is when I was really starting to like dig deep and just starting to research because, you know, I had started to use drugs because I'd just been through so much trauma at a young age. My father had been in prison, my grandfather, my uncles, everybody had drug problems or alcohol problems or been to prison. It was just something I grew up around. And so when I got arrested, it's like, oh, I'm continuing the family tradition, I guess. Here I am. In fact, I was locked up while my dad was also locked up. And then, you know, I'd been mad at him my whole life. Like, why isn't this dude here? And, and then here I go, I'm going down the same path. So it was a real kick in the nuts of just like, all right, what am I going to do? You know, how am I going to treat this time? And uh, it was the beginning of my healing journey. And so when I got out after all that, I had become a totally new person. You know, I was just like, I had to change friends, not only because some of my old friends were still fucking up and doing, you know, drugs and just, I just knew like, if I keep hanging around these people, I'm definitely headed back. So I need, I had to like really just sever some ties and be solo for a while. And I really just dove into my healing. I dove back also into psychedelics and trying to understand that medicine and sharing it with people and things like that. And all of those things contributed, including being a felon and not being able to get a job, contributed to my like newly awakened mind, being sober, the depression lifting, me rediscovering that I'm an intelligent person. I like to learn. I like to read. And I wanted to understand the world around me. And I also had just gotten out of the you know, the criminal injustice system and the drug war and wanted to learn more about that. So I read this book at the library called Cannabis, a History. And I highly recommend it to anybody because it's not just like a potheads book. It's like a history, sociological, historical, legal, et cetera, of the plant and of the laws. And I learned so much. It was like the first thing that really showed me, I don't know much about the world. This is not the version of events I was told in high school, the drug, you know, all these, this, the, the origins of the drug war being related to trying to drive out the hemp industry, trying to push racism. And, oh, it's the black jazz musicians. It's the Chinese and Mexican, you know, migrants that are bringing in the cannabis and they're stealing all the white women. It's, you know, stuff like that. That was all new information to me at the time. And so that was just like, boom. And then a few of these books here, I ended up picking up and it was, you know, it was over after that. Like, uh, particularly this one, I would say really wrote, woke played a big part rule by secrecy by jim mars and then uh, i also read ron paul's revolution of manifesto it all happened like in a week once i you know like these things tend to happen it's like the yeah. universe just starts throwing shit at you right like I, as soon as i started to wake up it was like i end up at a bookstore i had just moved into downtown i end up at the bookstore that was down the street from my house and they just happened to have this is 2010 so dvds were already on the way out but they just happened to have a single copy of alex jones zen game documentary so i took that home and that was just like pfft. At the same time, I was reading uh, Rule by Secrecy, Ron Paul's Revolution Manifesto, and then Ron Paul just happened to be coming to speak at U of H. So I got, it all just happened within like one to two weeks. And it was just like, oh my God, everything is like, and I became obsessed. I mean, I truly became obsessed with this and here I am 12 years later. <laughs> and you most certainly are obsessed in a good way. That's good. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I had to try to channel my, you know, my addictive personality. I don't like this idea of thinking about addiction as a disease personally i mean it might be a model that paradigm that works for some people but without a doubt i can say like i was explaining a moment ago you know i i have that ability within me to like just go super hard at whatever i'm doing yeah. right so if i was doing drugs it's like hey we're doing a lot we're not just going to do a <laughs> yeah, little bit yeah, yeah. and so you end up you know there's there's cost of that but that's also the sort of ethic that i try to apply to my work you know definitely i can completely relate um yeah, and uh, I, I wanted to just comment on the on the amazing synchronicity of books that or information that 
come into your life as soon as you open a door like you kind of mm -hmm. open a door and you're like okay i'm a little open to this subject and all of a sudden you find all these crazy <laughs> books and actually one of the books that you had on your uh, on one of your posts where you posted a bunch of books that you just bought or you're about to read uh one of the books that uh, was a game changer for me is on your list and it's this one here the Kabbalion. Yeah, I saw you comment that. That's awesome, brother. And like, honestly, this was a game changer for me. Even before when we came to Mexico, I actually kept it mm -hmm. private. And I didn't tell a lot of people in my life that I, I was reading this book and that this was what I considered my Bible for mm -hmm. 20, 15 years. And um, when, we, when we came to Mexico, I gifted everyone that came with me this book. And I'm like, mm -hmm. this book will get you through. So I was happy to That's see it awesome. on your list. I want to jam on that one day when you're done. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm getting, <laughs> I mean, the, the uh, esoteric, slash occult stuff has always been something that piqued my interest from the very beginning because like you said once you open yourself up and some of these books like reference it but in recent months i've been kind of preparing because i'm nearing the last five episodes of the pyramid of power and we're going to be getting deeper into secret societies and some of this stuff yes. so i've been kind of like let me go back and brush up on some of my old research and i don't know if you've had this experience maybe some people can relate but in the beginning when i was first waking up it's like you're like you said you're consuming so much information and i feel like it takes you a little while before you start to discern like okay infowars they've got some truth but there's also some yep. sensationalism here i'm going to kind of yep. you know i so i kind of feel like some of the things i might have consumed in the beginning i need to go back and see are those even true like do i really Definitely. believe those things still like because you sort of pick up things and you just carry it along and you know i hear people like oh yeah this thing happened and it's like actually if you dig into that that's not exactly what happened but it's what yep. a lot of conspiracy theorists think yep. because they just repeat things right so part of that is just you know touching up on on my interests of rudolf steiner and uh, yep. Manly P. Hall and Kibalian and her Hermeticism and a lot of this stuff to try to understand it better as it relates to the agendas that we are dealing with. But also, you know, because there is, I, I believe, a lot of knowledge to be gained from there. So, yeah, I've been dipping in and uh, the picture you saw. Yeah, that picture you saw, I, uh, I, I have a book addiction, again, addiction, but it comes this time in the form of books. And I decided to break that. And I typically deal with this by not going to bookstores. I don't allow myself to go to bookstores because I will just go crazy. Yep. And I'm like, I've already got too many books to read and catch up on and books yep. that I'm trying to. But this time I said, fuck it. My birthday is coming up. And I just ordered like $400 worth of books that are like all on their way, <laughs> including Kabbalion and a lot of Hermeticism and old school conspiracy research and stuff. Well, it's, it's great that you touched on that because actually I'm kind of going through like a weird phase of my life. Actually, before I get to that, I'll, I'll recommend this book. It's called, I'll send it to you after. It's called uh, The Secret Source. And it came up uh, right around the time of The Secret and all that stuff. And oh, it was cool. about like, it was discussing pretty much the Kabbalion, uh, early hermetic uh, history, uh, all of the stuff that you just jammed on. And it's from the, uh, the philosophical, um, uh, what's that organization that uh, Manly P. Hall started after, before he died? I can't remember the name of it. It's uh, Anyways, I'll send you this. It's a pretty interesting cool. book. And it's hard to I'll find. It, it kind of breaks down the history of all a lot of that. But uh, yeah, I've had something similar happen in my life, which is why I've took a little bit of a break from the podcasting because uh, I'm like rethinking a lot of the things I picked up over the years, whether it be spirituality or, or mm -hmm. things in, in, in the occult world and conspira conspiracy world. And I've avoided for a couple of years doing a deep dive into like um, the Tavistock Institute and social engineering. Mm -hmm. And like I kind of knew it a little bit, but then I started to go deep, deep, deep into it. Started reading uh, John Coleman's book on the Tavistock, cool. uh, Esalen's book on the Tavistock, and it kind of mm -hmm. making me rethink everything. So I'm gonna try to put something together about the New Age deception because a lot of the stuff that we've picked up in the in the New Age, not to say that it's all bad, but sure. like I kind of look at it like a formula of eighty twenty. They often put eighty percent truths and then just put twenty percent of a lie that steers you Absolutely. in the wrong direction. Sorry. Yeah. 
No, I was saying absolutely. That's that's definitely you know it's something to be to be wary of for sure. Yeah. So that kind of takes me into like the next uh, question I wanted to ask you, which was about um, I wanted to start talking about technocracy uh, and opting out. But before getting into that um, uh, technocracy as a subject in general, one of the components and the early uh, advocates of it often discussed uh, mind control situations on how they would they would steer everybody the wrong way, uh, mm-hmm. gaslighting individuals, uh, constantly changing the narrative masks on masks off uh, when they saw movements that were starting to gain uh, headway they would find ways of of disrupting it by creating uh, infighting and divide and conquer so these Absolutely. are things that are discussed in detail from the Tavistock Institute and you kind of see it uh, functionally like applicably in if that's a word it in, in the technocratic agenda so one of the things I'm seeing a lot of because um, the, the freedom movement, the truth movement, whatever you want to call it, started to really gain a lot of steam in the last couple of years. And I started to see something that kind of started to break my heart. I started to see a lot of infighting, uh, like a lot of people calling each other out. And I've mm-hmm. seen you get like <laughs> some serious bullshit thrown your way. Uh, you know, there's constant arguments between like, are you with Jeff Berwick? Are you with, with Derek? Are you with Allison McDowell? And all this like this infighting. And it's driving me nuts because... Uh, you can clearly see that their their agenda can work if we allow it. So like they'll take a, the truth movement and, and they'll segregate it. Are you QAnon or are you not? Sure. Are you vegan? Are you not? And then they want to have everyone argue. And I always try to find common ground and let people know, guys, the one thing we all have in common is that we want to express our opinions and our beliefs, whether the world is flat or not. So I want to fight for your right to be able to discuss whether you believe it's flat or whether you don't. And if we keep fighting, we're not even going to have the opportunity to have free speech, to even have this conversation, to have this dialogue. So I wanted you to riff a little bit about the, the divisiveness of this and the truth <coughs> you created in your, your amazing video on, on uh, um, Exit and Bill that you just recently put out. Uh, I think you made a lot of great points there with a lot of the traps, uh, you know, the black pilling and, and all of that and the tactics used. Yeah. So if you can crush that a little, I'd love it. Yeah, sure, brother. I mean, I think that, so for one, you're on the right track. If you're checking out Daniel's uh, work on Tavistock and there's definitely lots of good stuff there. And I encourage anybody who's unfamiliar with that to go, go into there. Um, and that's something we'll be covering with the pyramid of power. But I think that you're, you're spot on that. I mean, the movements, these overlapping movements, this growing big movement, we have been kicking ass the last couple of years. And uh, surely whenever those sort of things start to happen, uh, whoever they may be, whatever players they may be, people who are have different goals than us, let's say, they love to throw a wrench into that, right? And whatever that may be, it could be simply just starting rumors. It could just be sending out, especially in the time we're in now with bots on Telegram and Twitter and elsewhere, uh, sending in fake accounts to, hey, what about this thing? Have you heard this thing? Or just to try to stir up things. You know, you have to go back to the COINTEL programs of the 50s, 60s, and 70s and at that time, they didn't have the internet and, and telegram groups and Facebook groups and YouTube accounts to go infiltrate and try to get in people's heads. Instead, it was literally sending in physical people to go in like, hey, I heard this thing about this person or like, hey, um, you know, I don't like that. We sh- you know, he's he's the problem. We need to you know, just create animosity and create division. So seeds of doubt, so seeds of disruption like that has always been their case. There's the famous, you know, incidents of them trying to encourage Martin Luther King to commit suicide and stuff like that. Right. So that's old school. And I wouldn't put it past them to say that those things don't happen anymore because <clears throat> while it might be, <clears throat> excuse me, while it might be more, um, make more financial sense for the government or whoever to just, Hey, why send agents into physical groups or events like the greater reset or, uh, you know, 
conferences and, and groups like that, the Freedom Cell Network, when we can just get online and send in a bunch of bots to just cause disruption or create fake accounts. I mean, I think that's true to one extent, but also clearly infiltration still does happen. And uh, I mean, there's if, if this is a new topic to people, I recommend uh, looking further into it. I'm trying to remember this guy's name off the top of my head. He's this just jerk that um, is from Texas. And in 2008, he famously went from being an anarchist in the anarchist community, very well known to admitting he was working with the FBI and he helped entrap a couple of clueless small town Texas activists who came to the big city of Austin just to get involved and ended up being entrapped and going to prison because of this man. And this was somebody who was like, his name's Brandon. I can't remember. Now he works for Breitbart. He went from being like a anarchist to now there's, and there's a couple documentaries that are worth watching about it, but just, you know, for people to understand, like, there have been times where the government have government agents have infiltrated activist groups and literally had children with them, like yeah. had relationships, like got married. And then later it comes out like, oh, by the way, I've been entrapping all of you and you're all going to prison. So those things can happen. That doesn't mean we should live every moment paranoid because that's kind of the the opposing side of what we're talking about here, right? I get messages and emails from people who are so afraid of this, they won't even join the Freedom Cell Network. They won't even put themselves on a telegram group because they're like, no, what if you guys are secretly the CIA and you're going to send my information? It's like, okay, well then don't make use of the tool, but you know, you could put fake information if you want. But my point is people are so, they get caught up in that, that they're just and this is what I talked about, they get that uh, paralyzed, that sort of like defeatism, there's nothing I can do, or just there's a state of inaction, where even if they believe that maybe there are solutions, they're so paranoid or so concerned. And again, with good reason, you know, I'm not saying stop being paranoid, you conspiracy theorists, there's reasons for that. But we got to balance this, you know, we got to temper, like, because if you're in a position where you're so aware of the infiltration, and the attempts to create division and sow seeds of disruption that you don't do anything, well, then they're winning as well. You know I mean? They don't even have to disrupt you. If you just stay home, then there's no, they don't even need to disrupt things. They just know, okay, well, we scared them all so good. They're not even going to bother doing anything. That's another you know way that they can work as well. So ultimately, while I secretly suspect every person I meet of being a CIA agent, I still work with people, you know, and I'll share like a, a private story here. You kind of mentioned just like me getting a lot of flack from different things and it's annoying. It definitely has taken up too much of my time over different periods because I'm a human too. These things affect me seeing people talk shit about me, especially when it's like straight up lies and it's things that like, I'm just like, you know, it's hard to not be like, how, how dare they say that I need to go respond. Right. But I, you get to a point of you're just like, I got to let it be, you know, people who know me, people who care, people with critical thinking, they're going to ask questions. They're going to dig deeper. And if people just want to believe things they hear about me, then whatever. But one of these attacks was uh, recently over the whole debate about germ theory and terrain and uh, which I'm going to have some more work coming out soon, which will probably create more controversy. But I got to interview Dell, Dell's Dell Big Trees. The controversy is good, right? Honestly, I think that we shouldn't shy away from it, right? Not just for like, oh, yeah, I'm getting hits because it's controversial. But our communities, broadly speaking, should be able to have discussions and debates. And if we can't do that without exactly. still respecting each other as humans, then we're not going to get very far in, in the first place. They don't, And that's that's the other thing, too before I tell this story about Dell is that sometimes we're so paranoid about they and what they're doing, but th- we do the work for ourselves. You know, we fight amongst each other already. We don't even need the CIA, the FBI to come in and like, Hey, what about this? Or I heard this person about, you know, is doing this thing. Sometimes people just have bad personalities. You know, that's the other thing. And I'm sure you're, you've seen this, so, you know, especially here in Mexico, where we're at, there's been people coming from all over the world, right? People with all kinds of different backgrounds, different upbringings, people who have different levels of communication skills. So 
you know, it's, it's, it's not just like, let's all throw us into a pile and it's going to work out perfectly. There's going to be differences of opinion. There's going to be people who aren't great communicators. There's going to be people who are unstable. Unfortunately, that's, that's part of the movement and mentally unstable. And these are all things we have to accept. So sometimes it's not even they doing things. It's just human, human shit, you know, happening. But, uh, when I was talking to Dell, we actually got to meet in Miami a couple, about a month ago. And it was just after the interview and, you know, I saw him and he's like, Hey man, your interview caused me a lot of controversy. It was funny because both of our moms called us. Apparently he told me the story. He's like, my mom follows me on social media and she saw the hate. She even called me. I was like, my mom did the same thing. She <laughs> follows me on Facebook and she's just happened to see like this flood of like memes being made about me and negative energy and just all this stuff. Anyways, by the end of the conversation with Dell, after we talked about this and I felt like, you know what, this is to me, he could be a CIA agent, I guess. Like, who knows, right? That's what they, they're trained to, to play a role. But from what I could tell, this felt like a genuine human who's out there filing lawsuits and helping reveal good information about the shots and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I was saying that I, I got to meet Dell and we talked about this whole controlled opposition conversation. Who's, you know, who's an agent, who's not. And at the end of the conversation, Dell just asked me pretty plainly, how do you know that I'm not controlled opposition? And I just told him straight, like, I don't, but if like I treat everybody, if I start to feel like I can't trust you, I'll stop working with you. You know, and that's just kind of how I am. Like I can, we can never truly know another person, right? I mean, people 100%. are married to people for 50 years of their life and they find out they've been living a double life or something like that, right? These things do happen. It's hard to ever under hundred percent know who a person is when they're by themselves. Maybe when Dell's home and he's in his office, he calls his CIA handler and you know, I don't know that. Right. And I probably will never have the evidence for that, but I judge people by their fruit and by the actions they take. And like I said to him, like, if I feel like I get to a point where I can't trust somebody, then I move on. Right. And as I mentioned earlier with my tactic has been like, if I see somebody and they're coming at an angle or they're promoting the message or doing it in ways that don't really feel right to me, I take that as a lesson and say, okay, let me make sure that that's not how I'm approaching my work because I don't like the way that looks or feels. So let me make sure I approach it in a different way. And again, if that means like, okay, I don't necessarily trust. And this, there have been people that I've worked with in the past that I don't work with anymore. Maybe we're still associates. We say hi to each other when we run into each other, but I don't know that I can trust them fully or things have happened that have kind of changed my perspective. And that just is what it is. I think that's just life. But, you know, so I would just caution anybody who does have the awareness and the understanding that infiltration exists, especially online. We know 100% that they create fake YouTube accounts, fake Twitter accounts, fake mm -hmm. online accounts. And this all came out in the Snowden documents. I did some videos on it years ago. Their documents specifically say that their goal is to disrupt dissuade, deter, uh, deceive, you know, these, they have these whole D's of everything they're trying to do. And, uh, they use online platforms to do that. And they literally have admitted they create, they, that could be some anonymous account out there that never shows their face or who they are. And maybe they're working for somebody else. Now, I think it's important to question those things. Personally, I don't choose to just spend all my hours wondering that I have people reach out and make Derek, how do you tell who's controlled opposition? Who's not? I don't. I don't spend my time doing that. If I don't trust somebody, I won't work with them. If I have evidence, surely I'm going to report that, right? And say, hey, guys, look, I found this. I mean, I found Alex Jones' CIA card. Finally, we can prove it. But beyond that, I just feel like there's more productive things I can do. Agreed. And, and uh, what, what, uh, what a waste of energy there is in like investing uh, time and trying to figure out if every single person you know is controlled opposition. <laughs> so it's just a waste of time. Um, going, uh, I want to kind of move towards, uh, to, towards, uh, opting out and uh, the technocratic state. And I know you got like uh, an update 
to, to the new book. But before we just jump right directly into it, give me a little bit of a background on, uh, on um, Konkin, uh, mm -hmm. agorism, uh, and how you view it. Because um, I really like uh, the way you put it in the book. You really explain it simply because I've tried to go down the the uh, agoristic primer uh, tunnel and it could get a little, I don't know if I can say it's confusing. It's not confusing. It can be clunky. That's a good way of putting it. So when you put this out, I was like, okay, thank God. It was like right before COVID as I'm sure you'll mention, but it, it, it struck me right away. I'm like, I need this book. And then two minutes later, I definitely need this book because COVID's <laughs> on, at my doorstep. So yeah, if you could just yeah. jump into uh, to technocracy, uh, Konkin and agorism. Yeah, sure, brother. So, um, I'll recommend this to you and your listeners. It's worth your, your checking out. The talk that changed my life and introduced me to this was a talk given by John Bush, who is uh, my partner in the Freedom Cell Network in 2011. You can find it still on YouTube. If you search John Bush in the Fed, Houston, something like that, it should pop up. <clears throat> and that was the first time that I had this idea of agorism, agorism explained to me and, and specifically the strategy of counter-economics. This is all discussed in the book. I'll give like an overview, but the simple fact of it, like the way that it made sense to me is that John was speaking right outside the Federal Reserve, pointing at the building and saying, the only way we're going to end the system is if we stop using it. You know, we, we're, they're not going to audit the Fed. They're not going to end the Fed. There's no reason to sit here. And this is at the time when Ron Paul and others were trying to pass those bills and they were going nowhere. Nobody was paying attention. And so it was, the message was pretty much like, stop waiting for them to pass these bills to audit the Fed or in the Fed. It's not going to happen. The way you end the Fed is you find ways to stop using that system. And this is, of course, like 2011. So Bitcoin had been around for maybe a couple of years, but it definitely wasn't known to the degree that it is now. So we still didn't even have ideas. It was like people were trade mainly using silver. Like, okay, instead of dollars, let's trade in silver and precious metals or try to create alternative currencies. But it was in that moment that it just clicked to me. And it's like, wow, okay, so don't use the system, focus on creating something new. And that really, you know, it, it just took me in that direction. And so I did go down the rabbit holes of uh, reading Konkin's work. And I think they're worth reading at, to at least know the original work. You got the New Libertarian Manifesto and then the Agora's Primer, like you mentioned. But absolutely one of the reasons that I chose to uh, update to write my books and kind of take Konkin's ideas and repackage them is because I think he's a huge nerd and he, he sometimes writes, writes like a nerd and yep. has like a difficult way of explaining things. Like I'm a nerd for it and I'm like, I'm here for it. But I, as somebody who is very aware of marketing as well, I'm like, these ideas are important, but if they just stay in these books explained in this way, they're never going to grow. Right. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately Konkin died in 2004. So he hasn't been able to see like, how his ideas are you know, shaping the world right now. And so many people, whether they have heard of these books or read my book or know about agorism or counter economics, they understand it in, in principle and in, in, in reality, because people like yourself felt tyranny rising and said, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere else where there's more freedom. And that's exactly what Konkin described. He describes in his books, this process that he thinks society will pass through that as more people learn about this idea of agorism. And so um, we've said that enough that I should probably define it. He talked about that coming from the Greek word agora. The agora was just the marketplace, the place. But if you study the agoras, it wasn't just a place where people are buying and selling fruit and breads and things like that. It was that, but it was also like a debate place, a discussion place. So it was exchanging ideas, exchanging food, goods. And it was just, you know, the open, truly 
freed market. And Konkin took some inspiration from that. And his goal was like, okay, I want to head towards this, this future Agora where we can have voluntary relationships and voluntary exchange. And him being a student of the 60s, he was there around the Vietnam War. A lot of the big student movements, you know, the, the American libertarians were very active. Like you had the new left and in the kind of Rothbardian libertarian movement, Konkin was a part of that and very inspired by that. He actually came from Canada. He was an illegal immigrant in the U.S. for like 30 years until he died pretty much because he believed like, hey, I'm not doing anybody in harm. I'm not breaking anybody. That's part of his counter economic strategy. His idea was to get to that agora, this free place. How do you get there? He didn't think voting was going to make, you know, achieve things. He realized that back then. And I think more and more of us recognize that, too, that voting wasn't the ballot box wasn't going to be our savior. He also didn't think that violence and insurrection, you know, storming the Capitol, whatever, was going to lead to freedom. You know that or that it was even morally justified, even if you thought it was a solution. Right. Because from his position, and I think both of our position, you freedom doesn't mean forcing other people to be free and like, hey, your freedom means you live the way I want you to live, right? It means that you have to give people the ability to decide, do they want to be free? Maybe they choose to live under the state, right? So he didn't think violence was the way either. And at this point, you typically, if it's not voting, if it's not violence, then what are we left with? Just being apathetic, right? Like, okay, just give up defeatism. There's no way we can change. Let's just smoke weed all day and complain, right? That's a path I think many disenchanted, disenfranchised youth, including myself, fall into because politics that's not going to work right like you know so you give up almost in a way and Konkin instead and his i think really powerful insight which i hope in the coming years will be recognized even more so because as i'm going to explain in the update to the how to opt out all of his theories were proven true in the last two years everything that he said that people will respond to tyranny by looking for a more safe place people will exit his prediction of that um i think these things are we're still at the beginning stages but they're coming true and so he said, if we want to get to this agora, this free place, and we reject violence, we reject voting, then another path that he called counter-economics was part of the solution. And what counter-economics essentially means is opting out of the systems. I talked about the Federal Reserve System. So let's say you want to avoid the Federal Reserve System just because you don't like the banks, because you don't like fractional reserve banking. Or maybe, as many people are aware of now, you're afraid that your accounts are going to get shut down for donating to the wrong causes or believing the wrong things, right? So you recognize a problem. And you start to say, okay, well, I want to pull my money, my time, my energy, my financial, spiritual, moral support from these systems and instead participate in what he called the counter economy, this outside. And, and the, the reason he chose that term, the 60s, you know, counterculture and stuff, he was trying to tap into a lot of that kind of. So it was like the counter to the mainstream economy, not like against economics in fact it was he thought economics were really important and understanding how economic systems work were important but he meant it like so you have the mainstream white market white economy that's where people who are getting taxed uh you know money being taken out of your check going to the government there's a record of it that's like what most average people are used to and what we're kind of pushed into go get a job you know pay your taxes all that kind of thing so if you're trying to avoid that he talked about we should use the counter economy which were the black and the gray markets and again, Konkin being a voluntarist, he didn't believe in um, the initiation of force or violence. So when he talked about black markets, he didn't mean things like murder, um, theft. You know, these are the kind of things I think people hear the term black market. They think of the mafia and some kind of negative things. He simply meant black market being things that the state says are illegal, that you consciously choose to do anyways, that that's a counter economic act. And the gray market would be something like 
it's frowned upon. You're supposed to get a license to cut hair. You're supposed to get a license to open a business, et cetera. And he was saying if more people consciously chose to not do those things and say, hey, I'm going to exit from that system. I'm going to start participating in this counter economy. And he mainly did focus in terms of like finances and things like that, where I've tried to take these ideas and expand on them and talk about education system, the food system, like everything. Like we need a counter economy in all areas. And, um, and yeah, so that's kind of what Konkin talked about and he talks about in these books. And yes, I definitely, like I said, there's some parts where I'm like, I get what you're saying, but why do you have to be such a nerd and explain it in such a weird way? And I could just see like people's eyes like rolling, you know, glazing over. So I repackaged it in my book, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, took a lot of the ideas and not only just from like reading from him, yeah, there you go, reading his book, but also living this philosophy. Like once I discovered agorism like it was like oh my god this is what i'm already doing because as i was mentioning earlier when i started to wake up i had a very radical shift like i went from being a manager at a restaurant my boss wanted me to franchise the restaurant and like take over the business to like i said i started reading these books like after i got out he was he was a cool dude he was the only guy that would give me a job and I, at that point i was so frustrated i was like hey i have i have a felony for crystal meth can i be your cook i will learn anything i can do anything because i was just tired of being turned down and so we started developing a working relationship and eventually I became a manager and he was very supportive and, and I was, I was grateful for it, but I also was waking up while I was working there and, you know, he would come to the back of the kitchen. And I'd be back there reading rule by secrecy. It was just like, Oh my God, knee deep in it. And he's like, what are you doing, man? It's like, you're not even here. And I remember telling him like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm here. Like this, it just didn't matter to me. Like it felt so meaningless. Like it was a check basically at that point. I was like, yeah, I don't even care. Like my whole life was shifting. So at the end of 2010, I quit that job. I told him, like, I'm not going to franchise this. I'm quitting this job. I'm selling everything I own. I bought a touring bike and I spent three months traveling across the U.S. like by bicycle, volunteering on farms. And that was also when I stopped. That's the last time I've ever had a check, the end of 2010. So I have never, you know, had a relationship with the IRS or any sort of taxed income since then. And so I was already kind of doing that. And then I discovered Agoras and I was like, oh, my God, this is like what I'm already moving in the direction of. So, again, like the synchronicity of it. And so it's been the path I've been on for years. But in 2019, I started to recognize what we were facing, this rising digital dystopia. I started to do more research on technocracy through people like Patrick Wood and others. And also I could see from some of my journalistic work, which has often focused on digital surveillance tools, I could see that the rise of facial recognition, the rise of social credit scores in China and elsewhere, and all the digital tools were we're presenting a very huge challenge that not too many people were, and I would say even within our movements, we're paying attention to as much as they are now <clears throat> back in 2019. So 2019, I started writing this book and I published it January 30th, 2020, right before, you know, right as we were hearing about COVID. And as you mentioned, it has become my most popular book. And now I've written a new introduction and five new chapters, which are literally being edited and formatted right now. And if everything goes well, this book will be available for purchase by Christmas. And I'm going to have it at the Greater Reset in January. And it's basically just, you know, as you mentioned, the activation tour, you know, after traveling the U.S., I did 60 days, 30 city tour of the U.S. And then we did a 60 day tour of Mexico as well. And I learned so much just from talking to people like yourself about like, here's the thing I've struggled through. Here's the thing I'm trying to work through. Here's the thing that did work and the thing that didn't work for me. So a lot of it's like my own research, but also just kind of crowdsourcing this knowledge from all of us who've had to leave our home countries or move from one place to the other and trying to condense that information. And not and so I kept the book in its original form. So it has the original intro, the first two parts, and it also has Konkin's uh, book in there, which will now be the fourth part of the book. I wanted to keep it in its original form so people who haven't read it yet 
could consume it and be like, oh my God, this was before COVID and then see the post COVID updates and kind of understand. And so I do put a bit of history just for those who don't know, like, Hey, the last two years, the movement has grown. Freedom cells have exploded. We, you know, because when I, you know, think about this, when I wrote the book, we hadn't even heard the term, the great reset. We hadn't seen vaccine passports. We hadn't seen, you know, so much. So I feel like now I want to, and what the book is aiming to do is give people some tools, some ideas for thinking about becoming unbanked for, potentially facing more travel restrictions in the future, whether it's another pandemic or the climate or whatever, we know that they have these plans for more lockdowns, for more of these kinds of things. So the book is now taking the position of like, we've learned some stuff the last couple of years. Now we should get even more ready and we should think about these things so that whatever the next situation is, we're not caught with our pants down. And, you know, also I think the people who maybe were in places that ended up being extremely tyrannical, they now have a window to start considering, do I want to stay here for the next thing? Or would I like to, you know, exit somewhere else? Well put, man. And, uh, it was a, a very timely book is a timely book and the updates uh, I can't, I look forward to seeing. Um, and that takes me into like a solution parallel societies and all that uh you've coined a term and done a great job of kind of getting that information out there but before we get into that uh one thing i remember when I, my background's greek and i remember when i first uh, visited athens and uh, my grandfather was walking me through uh through athens sorry my, my uncle was walking me through athens he started to explain to me the agora and he's like this awesome. wasn't just a place to come come and buy things he wasn't an agorist but he didn't, hadn't known the term but he was an agorist sure. Uh, and he made a distinction even then uh, between libertarianism and kind of tried to like make it more action based. So he was des mm. describing to me the Agora. He's like, here's where our, our ancestor would come to argue, to debate, to discuss, <laughs> to buy, to sell, uh, to, to challenge so cool. each other. And, and he even pointed to a, uh, a, it was a temple at the time for the unknown God. And it's even referenced in the Bible wow. when they were walking, when uh, uh, I think it was Paul was walking through Athens, they said, well, why don't you go to the altar of the unknown God and tell us about your, your Christian God? So they even mm. had an acknowledgement that that's something to be debated, God and all this concept. So very cool. when I started to understand that that's exactly what we're doing here in Mexico, for example, and kind of looking at it from that standpoint, uh, it started to kind of make a lot of things click because now I, like I've been a year into to Mexico. Um, I'm, I'm here in large part because of yourself and Miriam, uh, you guys put out the, uh, the, uh, the um, all the information. Exit exit. Yeah, the Mexit yeah. webinar. And I even did a video about it when I got here about uh, like why I'm here and all that stuff. And yeah, it was extremely cool. helpful. Like here, here were two people to help guide you through the process of doing it and then showing you that it can be done. You know what I'm saying? But when you get here, what do you do with that as an mm -hmm. expat, right? And, I, and that really, really matters. And that's something that uh, you guys stressed a lot during the activation tour. And I think it was imperative that you did. Uh, and um, since that, I've constantly kept harping it and trying to get people to understand you need to create a counter to the economy, but also sure. to the society that's being built. And that is what took down the Soviet Union, really. It wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't battles and this and that. It was the gray market and the black market. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can vote with your money. You can vote with your legs. You can vote with the people you connect with, right? Um, and I want to start talking, get right into the parallel society stuff. How do you build? What type of communities? What kind of issues have you seen? So uh, anyways, yeah. take that and go with it any which way you want. <laughs> yeah, sure, brother. So first off, man, thank you again for saying that because it really is like um, 
it's an affor- it's a it's a reaffirming of the reason that Miriam and I take the time to do a two hour webinar, hoping that somebody will pay attention, right? Because for one, I started getting like so many emails and questions about Mexico that we were like, you know, we just need to have a simple thing we can send to people like in the future instead of just answering these questions over and over. But it, it is a really truly a humbling uh, experience to have people like yourself and others who've told us like, Hey, I came here after watching Megxit or, you know, hearing you talk about Mexico. I mean, it's, it's super humbling because I know that it takes a lot of strength and courage to make a move like that. So, you know, I appreciate you sharing that brother. Um, you know, when it comes to like being in Mexico, and I think this does apply anywhere else, because let's say people in Austria, Germany, some parts of Europe that were trying to get the heck away from the tyranny they faced, some of them might not have decided to come to Mexico. Maybe they went to a country next to them that felt a little more free, right? So whatever your circumstances are, if you're exiting from one location, physical location to another and search of freedom, what I emphasize, and I think it does matter in Mexico as well as other places, is for one, becoming integrated to whatever degree, you know, you're, you're possible or what, you know, what your goal is, because Yes, there are expats and people that come to Mexico and I'm sure visit other countries and they go into their little enclaves and they stay in these little bubbles and they don't speak any of the local language or maybe they don't really even have any connection to the people. And I'm not here to tell people what is right or wrong for them, but I can say strategically, tactically, that's not a winning strategy because if shit hits the fan and you're just the gringos down the road that nobody knows who they are then there's not going to be that family, that community, that unity, which is so important in Mexico, as you know, like that networking and the connections of who you know and, and building with people. And Mexico is a big country, so it's going to look different from, you know, Puerto to Morelia to uh, Tulum and everywhere else. Like, I, I get that. But generally speaking, going for integration, whatever that means to you, whether that means like, say you're a musician going out and trying to connect with the local music scene, that's something I've been trying to do, trying to connect with the local activists, trying to find, you know, the other people, like, for example, um, Miriam and I are vegan, but whether you're vegan or not, sometimes vegan markets or organic markets, these kind of places are where you're going to find the kind of people like us who want the good food, who want the healthier options, right? You might not necessarily agree with them on every political topic, but generally speaking, I've found that like going to those kind of events like health food shops or marketplaces, you know, farmers markets, you're going to meet other people. Those could be a good place to go out and pass out flyers and say, hey, I'm with this local group. We're trying to meet other people. Let me tell you about it, right? Um, And that you know, there's, of course, can be a language barrier if you don't speak the language, particularly here in Mexico, which, again, I think is why that's important. That's something that, you know, I grew up around Spanish speakers, but I was never taught Spanish. So I know quite a bit, but I'm not to the point that I hope to be in the coming months where I'm confident enough to give a, a speech in Spanish and explain technocracy to the fullest capacity that I can in English. Right. That's my goal, because I know I, it's a frustrating thing. You know, I'm sure anybody can understand this when like you're with other people. And you can express yourself to some degree, but you have so much to say, right? And I'm sure they have so many awesome things to share that I would like to hear and be able to like go back and forth with them. But that confidence just isn't there, right? So that's something I'm working on um, personally. And I encourage more people to to go down that road. Don't be intimidated because, you know, again, there's security and, and integration. But I also think it, it is just it's the right path, at least for me. Like I don't want to necessarily live in a in a bubble where I'm just got somebody bringing my my groceries to me in my gated community and I never see anybody else. And I just like, again, everybody has their own path, their own desire. I'm not here to tell people to live my lifestyle per se, but maybe if you do do the gated community and somebody brings your groceries, you still make the efforts to go into town and to meet up with other activists, to hold meetups and to organize. And, you know, the beginning of what's going on in Mexico. And I think a lot of the freedom cell network was mainly focused on just like connecting people locally and getting people to, 
not feel as alone, right? And that's been so important the last couple of years. Just that's been one of the biggest things, honestly, I can say that I heard in the US and Mexico is that I felt alone, I felt terrified, and then I found the Freedom Cell Network. I found the website or I found the Greater Reset or I found this group doing you know local things through your work or something like that. And that itself is just a huge weight off people's shoulders because then they're like, Oh my God, I'm not alone. I, you know, I don't feel so crazy. I can talk freely. And for many people, you know, they don't necessarily have the outlets that we do, or maybe don't haven't developed the friend circle where they can just talk about this stuff all day. Right. So they're having to put on a mask, maybe physically and metaphorically every day they go to work being somebody else. And then they finally get around other people and they just like, you could just see them like explode and they just, Oh my God, I have so much to share. And it's a beautiful thing to see that happening that, so that alone can be so empowering. And I feel like that was the role the freedom cell network was taking on, but now there are more people, myself, yourself, and others who are inclined to like, okay, but we need to get land. Like we want to grow our own food. We want to actually live around other people of like mind. We want to focus on raising the next generation of children in a different way. We want to, uh, you know, have clean water and these kinds of things. And this to me is, this is the agorist counter-economic exit and build strategy. Again, it's not just about the finances getting off the financial system, although that is a huge component with the central bank digital currencies and digital IDs and all that. Definitely something we should be thinking about. But it does apply. Like I try to take a holistic approach and, you know, look at all these different areas, economy, relationships, food, health, chill, you know, just the whole thing. And like, look at what area of my life, how can I apply this concept and, and build more community with people and get more integrated. And so myself, I've been in Mexico now two and a half years, and I've been working with a group uh, for two years now. Our group started at 50 people and naturally over the last two years has gone down to five households. So now it's five households, including me and Miriam, that we trust, that we know very well. And we've spent the last two years developing our decision-making process, developing our conflict resolution process, developing our entry and exit agreements. What do you do if somebody wants to leave the, the community? You know, do they just sell their house to anybody? Or, you know, how do you bring in new people and these kinds of things? And that takes some time. It takes planning. You know, there's a lot of people really excited. And I've seen this through the Greater Reset about coming to Mexico, but I've also seen people making mistakes. You know, we met people at the Greater Reset who maybe they meet up and they're all there and there's so much excitement. And then they rush to go buy land together. They don't even really know each other. Then six months later, they're suing each other. You know, they're suing each other because they realize like, oh, wait, we don't really have the same vision. You know, there's this tendency, I think, because, oh, we're all hanging out together. We're all on the same page, right? But it is important to actually get to the details. What does your vision look like? Maybe it's not the same as my vision, right? Doesn't mean we can't all coexist in the larger, you know, ecosystem, but you might not necessarily want to live with every single person you know in the movement, right? I know I sure don't. And, uh, you know, there might be people who are good friends and good allies and associates to hang out at the event, but they don't make good neighbors or they don't make good roommates or housemates or whatever, you know? So there's just so much that I encourage uh, people to take the time to do that. And we tried to get into some of that in the webinar. Miriam, I have also talked about doing a future webinar that's specific to this, like everything we've learned about community organizing, you know, trying to build an intentional community from, elders that we've interviewed who've had intentional communities for 40 plus years to our own experience and to different things like that. So I do encourage anybody who is, who is trying to focus on like building community in terms of like intentional community, eco villages, getting land, co-creating with other humans. Don't hesitate to spend a good amount of time on getting to know each other. Don't be, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the world. We all see it. We all feel it, but we don't do, we do ourselves a disservice by being in a panic and being in a rush, right? Because then you end up just making more work for yourself, right? I mean, there have been plenty of times over the last two years where 
I felt like, damn, are we going too slow? Like, why, what, you know, what this project should be further along or, you know, cause we don't have our land yet. We've had the site, the land that we want. We've been in touch with the owners. It's still there. It's been two years and we have some plans. We're going to be announcing at the greater reset to, I'm hoping we'll be able to secure this land by February, but I'm glad it's taken this amount of time. Like, in fact, if we had last year in May, 2021, there was 14 people still in our group and we actually did put a deposit down on the property. And so we put down this deposit and then basically you have 60 days to come up with the rest of the money. And we had done a good amount of work by that point, but it was all, it was actually at that point that I realized like, Oh my God, there's still more to do. Like we, we feel like we've done something, but then also when you got this, like, okay, 60 days counting down, you start realizing it. Oh my God, we haven't answered a lot of questions. Like, you know, before we all just start jumping on the land and we still don't know how this is going to work or what's this approach or what's our structure that we're going to, you know, who's actually the names, whose name is the land going to be in? Or is there, we're going to form a, you know, of trust or, you know, there's just so much into that topic. Um, I definitely recommend the book creating a life together for anybody who wants to get a lot of good tips. I mean, they it's, it's based mainly in the U S but still a lot of the information is universal and can be applied. Like one thing I would just share that has been helpful to us is the phrase from the book, good documents make good friends. And this is just, you know, we're all, we all think that we're on the same page when we shake hands or agree to something, but 10 minutes later, everybody remembers it differently, you know, or 10 years or 10 months later, you're like, wait, no, I thought that we agreed to this. And it's helpful to be able to pull up a document and say, see this, this is, has all of our signatures on. We all agreed on these principles. We went over that. And, you know, so that's what our community has developed. And the whole idea of the good documents, making good friends. The reason I mentioned that is because again, I think sometimes in our communities, especially because we're not always the people who are worried about what's quote unquote legal, or we don't want government documents. People get like weird about like, oh, you want me to sign a contract or paperwork? And that's fine. Like, you just probably won't be invited to our community. If you can't even do that most basic thing and put your name down and say, I commit to this, I'm with this, then I don't know that I want to work with you. Right. So it, it, that's just something that's been really key with us is making sure that for our internal group, here's the documents that we all agree. These are the principles we're building this community around. We've gone over them dozens of times. We've had discussions, debates about them, got to a place where everybody feels good. And then we signed it and said, this is what we're committing to. And then when we bring in new people, we tell them, here's the process that we're you know, bringing you into. These are the things that we're asking from you or expecting of you, et cetera. And it's real clear for everybody, right? And if it's not clear, we can go back and look and say, here's what we all agreed to. It's there in writing. There's no you know, way to misinterpret that. So that would just be one little bit of advice. Like if you are pursuing community in terms of getting land, living with other people, living near each other, et cetera, get real clear about what the vision is. What are you aiming for? What are they aiming for? And also be willing to be honest and say, like, we have different visions. Like, you know, not everybody who meets, not every freedom cell is all going to get along, right? And the people you meet at the Greater Reset or different events, they're not necessarily going to be the people you live with. You know, the people you hang out with at a weekend or at, you know, uh, events that you enjoy going to, those can still be associates and friends of the community, but they might not be the people that you end up you know, living with. A hundred percent. You said a lot there. I, I want to comment on a few things uh, from my experience as an expat having moved here that uh, you mentioned quite a few things that I wanted. To, uh, so one thing was in particular is, uh, you know, uh, c- kind of considering the type of community that you're, 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 uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're going into. Cause there's very like uh, you, you, you gave examples of a, of a few of them. There's some of them are like more, eco-based some of them are mm-hmm. like uh you know expats want to kind of uh, replicate a suburb uh, you know in, in sure. canada or whatever they want to just go to the hills and, and build that community and so on and so forth so like understanding the types of communities that exist and knowing the types of individuals that are there is is is, is paramount uh, but another key thing is uh integration i really wanted to talk about that to me that's a huge huge subject here 
because uh, I see a lot of expats and I'm not judging them for it, but they kind of stick within within like the expat community and they're kind of like, uh, I think you called it permanent vacation or I, I called <laughs> yeah. it retired, not retired. And uh, <laughs> they're just kind of doing that. And they, they think like yeah. the hardest part was leaving Canada or whatever and coming here and then, you know, that the problems are over. I'm like, man, you're not seeing the, the writing on the wall. This is going to get real, real quick. And you need to kind mm-hmm. of do this and you got to do it earnestly too. Not, not just to integrate with, with locals because you feel like you could take something from them or they can sure. help you down the road, but actually be interested in having this, this relationship with them. So at this, mm-hmm. at this point, I'd say half of my, my, my uh, social group are Mexicans. They're, they're local Mexicans, my community that I'm awesome. part of, uh, you know, um, that you've been to as well. And you know, uh, is predominantly Mexican at this point. Right. And then, uh, you know, understanding their their ways, and then they understanding our ways, and kind of putting it together, and taking the best out of both worlds, and you know, excluding the stuff that sucks, actually makes for a better society. It's easier to integrate uh, both in the society and the culture, but it's also easier to integrate in the concept and idea of creating a parallel society. And I, I don't think Absolutely. that could be understated. Because from my experience, the ones that I, the, the expats I see here that are doing really well, like mentally, physically, mentally, and spiritually, are the ones that are actually integrating and looking for community. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's that can't be stated enough. Um, another great, great point, point. You, another great point that you made about um, about community is, uh, you know, putting it all on the table, you know, kind of like getting all the difficult conversations out of the way. Like in my community, there are carnivores, there are omnivores and there are vegans and uh, everyone has to kind of be comfortable with how that. Uh, plays out in the future and mm-hmm. so far i haven't seen any issues i haven't seen any problems like i've met you personally and and uh, there are some vegans that'll just throw that shit in your face and others that'll mm-hmm. just be like that's what i do and that's what you know you do what you do and i do what i do and we're good with mm-hmm. it and uh there's no no issue there but then when it becomes like a religious preachy thing whether it's about something spiritual or something it becomes an issue and a lot of these communities do have a mission statement as to why they want this community to exist and it may not be something that you want to sign up for so sure. like some of the communities i'm seeing built here in the freedom cells are more like uh suburbs in the hills i'm not interested in that like i'm yeah. just not interested in that and that doesn't mean that i still can't communicate with these this community and kind of maybe even exactly. create a trade route but you're good with what you do and i'm good with what i do and then that's that's just how it should be so And the reality is we need, we need like a diversity. This is what I talk about in the book too, is like, we're working towards a time where there's a diversity of all kinds of communities, right? Because it's not just like, Hey, let's build a community in Morelia. Let's build a, you know, and that everybody's come there. We're going to save the world from one location. Like we need people thinking in these terms of opting out of the systems and building the new systems, building new communities, new ways of living to show people this is possible. Cause half, I'm sure you've run in this too, is like most people don't even believe that this is possible because they haven't seen it. People, you know, we're humans. We learn by what we see visually typically. So if somebody can't see this example of people coexisting and working together and growing food and doing these things, it's just like, I don't know, that seems so abstract, so far away. And so, you know, to me, it's like the more of, a, of these communities that are existing and also the more communities that have different visions and different ideas, because yeah, like we're not a vegan community. We have half vegans in there, but we've had to had discussions and come to like an arrangement that works for everybody that we feel good about and that everybody can agree. And you know, that's that. So ultimately when we have, like I mentioned, we started with 50 people, 20 something, 14 now down to five, there's no bad blood between any of these people. In fact, it's more like, I'm glad you're recognizing the vision we have doesn't work for you. So you can go find the vision that does work for you. And in fact, if I can help you, let me tell you about the other communities I've learned about or met. Right. Exactly. So we need as many as possible as far as I'm concerned. I, I fully agree. And, and I'm really happy to see what's happening here in Mexico and people coming, kind of coming together. And it's, it's a good thing to see, you know what I mean? And so, uh, I just Something special is happening. For, 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to thank you personally for like, uh, you know, helping out a lot of people I know personally that have been helped by yourself and Miriam. Thank and I don't mean that lightly. It's it, thank you. It's, it's been a, it's been a big help. It's heard and appreciated for sure. So I'm going to, cause I know we're coming close to the end here and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I definitely don't want to let you go without talking about music. Do you got a few minutes to talk yeah. about music? Yeah, let's talk about music. I'm down. <laughs> so I wanted to just kind of get into it real quick by uh, just saying that uh, one of the best ways I find to kind of uh, fight back and push back to the, uh, these, uh, the spiritual war that's, that's being waged out there um, is uh, create, create things. One thing that humans mm. do, they clearly don't like whatever it is that it means to be human, the who part of you, like, who are you, that part of you, they don't, they like the what, they like to control the what, you know, the physical, mm. whatever, but the who, they don't want you thinking about. And one interesting thing is art, man, and music. It has a way of like, I, I remember uh, the band that I left behind in Toronto, uh, uh, where is a gypsy folk punk band, and a lot mm. of them were atheists or whatever. And it took them a couple years of me singing these songs. And they're like, are you talking about consciousness here in like terms of god i'm like yeah dude you've been playing the song with me for like seven eight years you just caught he was like you know i'm an atheist right i'm like yeah i'm like do you have a problem with playing this song he's like, well a little bit we should talk about it but the way it came to him was he was just walking down the street reciting the lyrics in his head and it dawned on him that the message was this wow you know what i'm saying I've had that happen similarly too. Like I, uh, I used I, my before everything I'm doing now. I was a metal vocalist. I've always been in like metal and punk bands, and so I've always been the vocalist, always been the lyric writer, and had similar conversations where like the guitarist or somebody's like starting to like check out the lyrics and like, what are you talking about, man? Like I'm like, yeah, I'm talking about some real stuff. I don't know if you guys noticed. But- <laughs> <laughs> so, um, being that we're both practicing this art revolution, let's call it. Um, mm-hmm. tell me about music, man. Like, uh, before I, I crush uh, like some stuff about your album here, how did you get into it? Like, you know, yeah. where, where, where does Derek and music, where do they meet? Man, they met very early on. Right. Like, in, I mean, I've been in bands since I was in sixth grade, you know, garage, just, you know, playing in the garage with friends, screwing around. But I started doing shows like local shows, house shows, you know, when you're in high school, you're just playing at people's houses or backyards or, you know, you get your first venue gig and it's like a big deal. Right. Um, so I was doing that all the way through, like playing with friends in their garage in seventh grade. I super at young age, like inspired by bands like Slipknot. So we were dressing up in costumes in the garage, just doing our weird thing. And then through high school, it started to become something that I took seriously. And actually, and I, I don't think I, too many people know that this, I haven't really shared it much, but the band I was in as I was graduating high school, which was called Through Broken Glass. And there's probably still some music out there somewhere. This was, so I was graduating high school, 2003. And if you remember, like, this is, of course, MySpace days. This was the very beginning when bands were starting to get picked up through the Internet. Like, it wasn't like there wasn't SoundCloud. It was just like you could load music on MySpace. And, you know, there was a MP3.com and stuff like that. Right. So it was the beginning of that. And that whole paradigm was shifting, just like the Internet changed so many things. Right. Like you didn't have to rely so much more on trying to just get a label because that was a thing back in the day for anybody. It's like who doesn't know. It's like your dream is somehow a label's going to hear me and pay attention to me and I'm going to get picked up and then I'll get signed. Right. This is before you could just put your music out there and develop your own following. And uh, we actually got signed and we were about to start working on, we had just recorded our own self-recorded album and this label, this small label based out of Arizona heard it, picked it up. They loved it. They wanted us to re-record it and release it. So we were negotiating like merch contracts and distribution and all this stuff. But this is also the time when I started to really get into my partying and stuff, myself and the bass player. We were both just doing a lot of drinking, a lot of cocaine and stuff like that, where the 
guitarist and the drummer were like stone cold sober boy scouts like you know they didn't just wasn't part of their world so um unfortunately that it got bad enough that my bass player just literally bailed one day we we called him like dude where are you at we got practice and his mom's like steve's no no longer here he moved to arizona just picked up and like he felt like his problem was so bad he just needed to leave and um the label heard about it and they decided to drop us they decided like oh you guys are going through some stuff so we're gonna go ahead and pass and that was a huge like no like oh my god damn it we so close yet so far right and then i get locked up in 2005 i was still in the band and they stuck with me when i got out we kept playing but then when i got sent back it was like you know once you get sent back a second time most people have less patience so girlfriend left me band left me and i just was in and out of doing that thing for a while but when i got out and i got into activism again i kind of started sort of put music aside you know i did go to college for a little while and i just had my own uh my own training but i took the one thing that i actually learned was this class I took called concert promotion and venue management. And so before activism, I've also, I was always a promoter, whether it was promoting and booking my own bands. I started this company. And what I mean by that is I just started doing things. I didn't ask for permission, uh, but I started a company called visionary noise, which is still around. A friend of mine runs it now. And I basically just started booking bands. And it's funny because I was in the scene, I was going to shows and the punk scene and all this stuff. And when I realized as I moved into the city and I was waking up, I wanted to like do something. I was just like, I want to make music. I want to, I want to still be involved in music. And I started asking around to some of the promoters and as these things can be, it was very clickish. And I was told, literally told, you can't just start booking shows, man. Like there's yep. people that do that. And I was just like, what are you fucking serious? That's how shit is. Like these are from the punks, right? They're like, no, we're the one that books the shows kind of stuff. So that of course, as has been a habit in my life, I'm like, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm just going to create my own thing. And so at that time I was creating the Houston Freethinkers activist group. I was also creating visionary noise. And the first thing I started doing was benefit shows. It was just, again, I wanted, I was like waking up and I wanted to do shows that mattered. So we would do like, um, anti-war shows, raising money for Iraq veterans against the war, or, you know, raising awareness about homelessness to raise money for Food Not Bombs Houston. So the shows were always five bucks. And at the beginning, it was all punk and metal bands. But then as I, my activism started to grow, I realized like we need to reach more people. So we would do like mixed shows. So there'd be like a hip hop act, there'd be like some, you know, folk, and then there'd be some metal, just a whole mix. And it would, we'd get local artists and vendors to come table. And it was really cool. So even when I wasn't playing music, I was still always like, promoting music and then as the activism came together eventually i started i uh we had this festival that we did in houston called for the community we'd get like four or five hundred people out 20 30 bands for free and just have all these vendors and it basically gave us a way to invite people to a free party and in between the bands we'd be getting up there and saying telling the truth and talking passing out dvds talking about hey if you want to get plugged into the group we started we do activism all the time and so there was a really cool time where even though i wasn't playing music uh, myself, the music and the arts and the activism were all merging. And then after a couple years of doing that, I was like, I need, I like, my soul is missing music. Like I, I need to freaking scream. I need to like do something, you know, I like to play around with electronics and stuff, but it just wasn't satisfying me. So I was in another band. You can find us out there, Monankari, uh, very spiritual, you know, spiritually infused, like metal. Um, you know, I was the vocalist. And so again, the lyrics were always like conscious and uh, I got kicked out of that band in 2019 because I was running for mayor and I was just too damn busy. <laughs> like I just, I had to accept it. I was like, no hard feelings, guys. Like I get it. Like I'm, I just show up for practice and to record. I wasn't like, you know, you know how sometimes like, like a band's a relationship. Right. And I was just the guy showing up. I wasn't as connected as, so I understood it was like no hard feelings, but that was also around the time when I really started, I had about a year before that 
started opening up. I've always enjoyed hip hop as well. And I started opening up this idea of like, well, maybe because I'm so busy and I don't have time for a band, maybe I just need to explore music I can make kind of at my own pace and my own schedule. And, um, you know, as typically there's a couple of synchronicities, uh, my, my father died of his drug overdose right around the time I was turning 33. And, uh, you know, it just something opened up in me. And one day I just had my PA plugged in my room and I put on some like jazz hop lo-fi beats for like three hours and just all this stuff just started coming out of me. And I just, I was recording that, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. It wasn't anything pretty or that great, but it was just coming out. And I recorded the whole thing, the audio of it. And I went back and listened to it. I was like, man, there's some nuggets in there. There's some good stuff that could be fleshed out. And that was the beginning of what I now call 33. And so last year I started releasing my first music, uh, did a little uh, EP called Letters to Myself. And then uh, within the next month or so, we're going to be dropping this first full album, which is called Transmutation. And it's pretty much like this album, the 12 songs on there are the soundtrack to everything I went through that I described earlier, that the soundtrack to the depression, the confusion, the suicide attempts, the you know, recognizing that I had people around me who didn't care about me and they just cared about the drugs, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, and then eventually, of course, getting locked up, waking up, healing. Like, so this album is trying to transport people to the, you know, those dark places. So it's, it's, it's a heavy album in the sense of like, you know, content wise, but I think people are going to enjoy it. And there's definitely there, you know, there's a period it's meant to be listened to as an album. You know, a lot of times music these days, it's just like singles and stuff, but this is definitely meant to be like, listen front to back, hear the lyrics and take, go on this, the journey that I'm trying to take you on. So I'm super excited to share it. Well, I've, I really felt that uh, with your first uh, letters to myself, um, like just <clears throat> I was listening, re-listening to it again uh, the other day. And I, like, I really like how it t- tells like your story of like where you came from. It, you, you, you hone in on a lot of stuff about your addictions and your issues with your family and all that stuff. But I also like that you uh, reflect on your own flaws, like as if like mm-hmm. you're responsible for, for some of the things that have happened to you. And I, I think it's uh, looking into the mirror the, uh, with the last track, look, looking into the mirror. Uh, hold on, see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look in the mirror. That's mm-hmm. my favorite track. Because yeah, I could, I could, I could <laughs> and I'm picturing, I'm picturing you just sitting there kind of like literally looking in the mirror, like just letting it all out, you know, the good yeah. and the bad and kind of just dealing with it right there on the spot. And, uh, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to what you got coming down the pipeline. That, man. The production yeah, that song, oh, sorry, that song, ahead. let me just say on that, that song, it came yeah. from a place of just getting sick of people talking shit and yeah. Houston because I got local haters as well as, you know, internet haters from uh just the, the you know the 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 mistakes i made while i was growing up and things i did you know people want to keep you in the past sometimes and sometimes it's like people especially at this point just make up shit but there are things you know people i didn't treat as good as i could have when i was younger relationships you know being a cheater being a liar these kind of things that that song is really kind of just like putting that up like hey you know you think you got something against me here it is i'm gonna put it out you know and the same thing like when i ran for mayor it's like i'm gonna just admit to everybody hey i'm a felon former drug addict now you got no no ammo against me right because i'm gonna put it out myself yeah well yeah and and like that that takes a lot it takes a lot of balls to do that because uh you know it's not it's not easy to put it out there for everyone to hear and like yeah and listen and and the way you even started the album with reflections it kind of sets the tone and then how you end it you end it with like reflection of yourself Thank you for that. Appreciate it. you catching that. It all, it also kind of reminds me of the title of your uh, your um, your website, like a conscious conscious resistance. It can be taken mm-hmm. two ways, like you know, resist consciously or resist the consciousness. You know. Yeah. 
It's definitely about uh-huh. how you interpret that. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you're catching these. I, it does it does feel good to to know that somebody out there is checking it out. And I believe that with this new album, like honestly, I was just telling my producer yesterday, I'm proud of what I did with Letters to Myself because just, you know, you got to put the first thing out, right? Like here's the first thing, the first attempt. Um, but I definitely believe what we're about to drop with uh, Transmutation is miles ahead of everything I did before. And I can't wait to share it. Yeah, sorry, that, that cut out there real quick. What I was saying was, um, it reminded me how you entered the album with reflections, and you exit it with like looking in the mirror, uh, looking into the mirror. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the title of, of your website, Conscious Resistance. It kind of means two things the way I see it. It's, it'd be like, resist consciously, like know what you're sure. doing and consciously resist by exploring your consciousness or like just generally being aware of it. Or it could be reversed, like avoid it. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> so... <laughs> Definitely about how you interpret that for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to say that, man, I appreciate you listening to the, to the first EP and stuff. And it's funny because um, I think as musicians and maybe you can relate to this, like there's a tendency to like, especially if you're for me, you know, hip hop is something that I've listened to, but never explored as an artist. So it's like, all right. And then with a band, right. It's a little different. There's four or five people on stage. Also I'm growling and screaming. So it's kind of like I'm hiding behind a little bit. There's not, there's like a little bit of layer, but this is just like me standing there with a beat and my voice, you know, it's like very, I feel very naked doing it, yeah. but it, but it's a, it's a fun challenge and I enjoy it. And um, yeah, I was just listening to letters to myself and talking to my producer who's working on uh, transmutation. And I was kind of telling him, I was like, you know, I really don't feel like I even need to, or want to listen to that any the first one anymore not because i'm not proud of it or anything but because just growing as an artist right and i also feel like what we're about to release with transmutation that i dug in like even deeper to what i was trying to start uh, sharing in letters to myself and that the music the beats the production and the lyrics that i'm using for this new one i think that they're miles ahead of everything that i did last year yeah uh is um clarity uh, streetlights going to be on that Album, yeah. did you release that as a solo? Yeah, you can really see it there. Like you could hear that the production quality has shifted. It's a little bit more um, sophisticated. If I, mm-hmm. well, sophisticated may not be a bad way of putting it, but it's a little bit more. Uh, there's a lot more changes. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to flow because a lot of times when you have the beat, it's you know you just flow on the beat. But then if the beat's changing or coming in and out, it's kind of tricky to the MC. Uh, and you did a really good job. Actually, I saw a huge growth in your your delivery style. Thank you, brother. Um, so I'd seen you live uh, three times doing it, and each one, each time you did it in Sayelita, and then you did it uh, in, in, in Busarias and PV. It was a bit of a different flow; like you changed mm-hmm. the flow a bit, just a bit. Uh, but on here, you could see it on the new track. It's like you're exploring your uh, your cadence a, bit, a little bit differently, and you're kind of really, definitely. So it really shows. Yeah, I definitely you. pushing myself like with this one. Like I, when I was tracking out the album, I had like the vision of like, okay, there's a couple of points I know for sure. Like I want to tell a story about getting arrested. I want to tell a story about this thing, you know. But I didn't really know what was going to come, and I just started. Uh, I use this website, BeatStars, which is like social media for producers where you could just go and like check out people's profiles. You can search by genre, sound, emotion. It's, it's a really cool site, you know, but it's not just hip hop. People who, who are producers will put all kinds of music. And so I spent like weeks just searching and searching for the beats that really called to me and felt like this is what I want. These are the producers I want to work with until I had uh, 13 songs that I think we ended up using 12 of them. And I just started, you know, working on them bit by bit every day. I started just committing a couple hours each day of just like, okay, I'm going to put this beat on for hours and I'm just going to listen and listen and see what comes out. And then just writing them without kind of like trying to micromanage myself, if that, if that makes sense. Cause it's like, I have the vision, 
but I want it to come out naturally too. You know, I don't want to like overthink like, well, where does this song need to fit in? Does it need to go this place? Which is sometimes difficult for me. So I just let it like come from the heart. I ended up with like all these songs. And as I was telling the stories and the songs were coming out, I could start to see like, okay, so this is going to go here. This one's going to go here. And now it's like at the point where we've got the, we've got the track list. We've got half of the album uh, mixed and mastered. I've released the two songs, Clarity and then Set Myself Free. Those are going to yep. both be on there. And um, I even re-recorded uh, one of the songs that was on uh, Letters to Myself, Till Tomorrow Comes. We re-recorded that because that's one of my favorite ones that I think really, it, it's definitely going to fit better in transmutation as part of the journey, the story. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, it's just like literally probably today I might get a, another track update. We're just grinding away at, at it at this point and I'm hoping to release it by Christmas. I'm looking forward to it, brother, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you perform live again. Probably you're going to be doing that at the Greater Reset? Yeah, I will be performing at the Greater Reset, yeah. Awesome. All right, my friend, we're at the end. Uh, please plug anything you got coming down the pipeline. I know you uh, put out an immense amount of content. Uh, so uh, what do you want people to kind of know that's coming down the pipeline? Well, I appreciate you first, brother, fully, wholeheartedly. Thank you for your time and your effort to try to contribute these conversations and get people thinking. You know, that's what we need all of us doing in these different ways. So thank you for that. Um, my main website, theconsciousresistance.com, is always a good place to catch my content. If people are not familiar with uh, my documentary series, The Pyramid of Power, they can check that out at thepyramidofpower.net. And uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times, The Greater Reset, thegreaterreset.org. If you're in Mexico or you want to come to Mexico, if you're thinking about it, January is a good time to come because there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the world here. And it's it, we're going to have community meetups, networking, talking about the things we've been sharing today. So I recommend that as well. And I appreciate you, brother. I do as well. Thank you, Derek. And for everything you do, thanks again. Thank you.